The opening of Parshas Vayetze is famous for the dramatic dream, the prophetic dream that Yaakov has as he's running away from his brother and he lies down to sleep and he sees the famous ladder, Sulav Mutzav Artsav, Rosha Magia Chamaima, the ladder going all the way up to heaven and the angels are Ulim Vyordimbo, the angels going up and going down. And in the aftermath and the culmination of that incredible and inspiring prophetic dream, we read towards the end of Perach how Yaakov wakes up and he takes a vow. If Hashem will be with me, he'll guard me on this way, this way that I'm going. If he'll give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, if I can return safely to the house of my father eventually, then Hashem will be for me a God. The declaration that the Torah describes as a vow that Yaakov takes is, at first glance, quite shocking. It certainly seems like he's making his commitment to Hashem, that which he completes his nether with. That God will be my God, Hashem will be my God. It certainly seems like he's making that conditional on Hashem giving him good things in the previous Pasuk. If he protects him, gives him food, and gives him clothing. And it just seems to be impossible and inconceivable, we would think, that Yaakov, such a tzaddik, would make his entire commitment to Hashem conditional on Hashem living up to his promises to Yaakov. Moreover, in a more subtle problem with these psukim, is that the very things that Yaakov is asking for, protection, returning to his father's house, etc., are the very things that in his prophetic dream he had already been promised. So what happened that all of a sudden, right after he wakes up, he's already doubting what Hashem had just promised him? Basically, there are two approaches in the Mepharshim to try to understand what Yaakov is doing in these psukim generally, and specifically, what is meant by that climactic declaration of Ahaya Hashem Li Le'elukim. Rashi, throughout the previous Pasuk, the initial Pasuk, explains that Yaakov is not chas v'shalom, making anything conditional. Rather, he's merely outlining what he will be able to do in response when each detail in the dream is actually fulfilled. It's just a description of events. If these things happen to me, then I'll be able to do these things. Not that I'll only do them if, but rather as a simple declaration of reality, it will be possible for me to do X and Y when these good things happen to me. Moreover, when it comes to that climactic declaration, Rashi explains, based on the Medrash, that this is actually not just a statement, but in fact almost a tefillah, a prayer, that if everything goes well, and Yachol Shmo Alai, Hashem's name will rest upon me, that I'll be able to not only be religious and virtuous on my own, but all of my zera, all of my children, will be loyal and faithful followers to Hashem. I'll have no wayward children, no children who go off the derech. He's davening that not only should he be successful and close to Hashem, but hopefully Hashem's promise should be fulfilled through his children, grandchildren, and for all generations. Rashbam, in a similar vein, says that this last statement, is a prayer, it's not a condition, it's just a tefillah, 
Moreover, the Sforno also, keeping in this vein, explains that the various phrases that Yaakov mentioned are requests, each in their own way, for Hashem to remove various physical impediments which could become uh, problems when it comes to spiritual growth. We often uh, artificially bifurcate between spiritual and religious challenges, but Chazal in many places, and the Sforno references this, point out that sometimes physical impediments can actually be, physical challenges can actually be impediments to spiritual growth. And therefore, Yaakov is praying that and asking Hashem, if he removes those things, then not as a condition, like if you don't do this, I won't do it, but rather simply as a mitzvah, that if I'm struggling with parnasa, if I'm struggling with certain basic human needs and necessities, I won't be able to fulfill my spiritual promise. All of this, as I say, is somewhat one approach whatever the nuances are between Rashi, Rashbam, Sforno, and others who fall into this camp, that this is really state, either tefillot slash statements of Yaakov, but certainly not conditional uh, you know, state conditions that he's placing on Hashem. A contrast to all of this is the explanation of the Ramban. The Ramban understands at least this last phrase, that Haya Hashem lila elokim in a completely different way. That this is not part of the request, and certainly not a condition, Rather, it's a result. As a result of Hashem's promise, which was made back on Pasuk uh, Tezvav, I believe it is, Hashem tells him that I'll watch you, I'll return you, I'll return you to Eretz Yisrael. You're about to leave, but I'll return you back one day, Hashem promises, to Eretz Yisrael. That Hashem, the Ramban explains that it's only now, after having this prophetic dream, that Yaakov realizes that in order to have a complete and full relationship with Hashem, it has to be done in Eretz Yisrael. That is the ultimate place for spiritual fulfillment for a Jew. It's now that Yaakov first and fully realizes that I'll be able to have that complete relationship with Hashem only once I return to the place of my father, of Eretz Yisrael. And it's only then that Hashem will truly be for me, Elohim. Only then, Vahayali, Hashem li, Elohim. Not as a condition, not as a taunt, ultimatum, chas shalom. It's just a metzius. It's an acknowledgement of a reality to be a complete Jew, a Jew must be in Eretz Yisrael. And this is something that many of you know is a motif that is found in many of the commentary and writings of the Ramban. And this is one of, if not the first time, in a sense explaining this enigmatic fubsukim in our Parsha, where the Ramban outlines and puts forth this thesis of his, how just how central being in Eretz Yisrael is to the spiritual development of a Jew. Yaakov continues his journey, fleeing his parental home to avoid the danger coming from his bloodthirsty brother Esav. Having just completed the famous dream of the heavenly bound ladder with the angels going up and going down, the Torah continues and tells us in the beginning of Perkhavtes how Yaakov's journey continues eastward, and how then he sees Vayar Vihine Be'er Basadeh. He sees a well, and not only a well, he sees flocks of sheep lying beside it, a stone, an evan, a big stone, al-piyabe'er, covering the mouth of the well. He then sees how they would roll the stone off the well, and eventually shepherds come with their flocks to water them. Yaakov engages them in conversation, and when he finds out they're from Haran, he immediately asks them, do you know my relative 
You know, my kinsman Lavan, they say that not only do we know him, look, here comes his daughter Rachel. The story unfolds with Yaakov helping in the watering of Rachel's sheep. Eventually they begin conversation. Yaakov eventually is taken home to meet her father. And we all know how the story ends. The incredible courtship, the love story with Rachel, the tragic story with Leah, and how eventually they become a unified family. And the rest, as they say, is history. It's easy to overlook this initial recounting the story at the well. After all, everything that happens with Yaakov and the two sisters in Lovin's house, and of course, before that, the dream at the, with the ladder, these are seminal, incredible, important events in the life of the Torah, the Avos. But in this little story tucked in between the transition story, as he meets the shepherds at the well, and eventually there, Rachel, the Baal Haturim, one of the great medieval commentaries from the 13th and 14th century, Balaturim notices and points our attention to the fact that this story didn't just take, happen to take place near a well, but the Torah in these few psukim mention the word be'er, or some form of it, seven different times. In fact, the Balaturim continues and says five of the times it says ha-be'er, with the he ha and three of the times it describes something happening on the well. Al-pi-ha-be'er. Seven overall, five with the hay, three al-pi. And the Balaturim continues in an insight which is characteristic of his general commentary, which focuses very much on numerology. Says the Balaturim, this is not a coincidence. The seven, five, and three are actually ramazim, subtle hints embedded in the Torah text that allude to the following. The seven refers to the seven alios, we read the Torah on Shabbos. The five to the five Elios, when we read the Torah on Yantif. And the three, referring to, hinting at, the three Elios, when we read the Torah during the week. This is the observation, the insight of the Balaturim. And while it's, at, on the one hand, fascinating, it is cryptic, to say the least. What could there possibly be a connection how could there be a connection? What could the connection be between how many aliyahs we give at various times for the Torah and this story of the well and Yaakov meeting the shepherds and eventually Rachel? Ramosha Feinstein, in the Sefer Darash Moshe, suggests that in fact what is being conveyed by this brief insight of the Balaturim is in fact a fundamental and significant lesson in life and in Jewish thought. Think about it. Yaakov spent most of his life in a spiritual cocoon, living in the house of Yitzchak. According to tradition, according to the Chazal and our Masorah, his initial foray outside the house had him spend 14 more years in what is known as Yeshiva Sheshem Ve'ever, that ancient biblical yeshiva was transmitted, whatever it meant to study Torah in those days, and it's hard to understand what that means, but this is a tradition that we had. He's now well into his 70s. And he sees this Be'er Mayim, this well of water. And it's not just that he sees the well of water, he sees, and the Torah is describing it, how people work, how they have flocks of sheep, they tend the sheep, they feed the sheep, they give the sheep water to drink. And he understands that in fact, something significant is going on, perhaps something he never realized 
in the spiritual cocoon that was the first stage of his life. And that is, Sharatzon Hashem Yisbarach Shiyasku Yeshuva Shalolam. He sees people not just earning a parnasa, making a living. They're doing that. But more than that, they're doing something that's meaningful. They're tending to the land. They're building up society, building an economy. And that is something that is actually meaningful in the eyes of Hashem, says Ramosha Feinstein. Yaakov understood that this is Ratzon Hashem, to be Osek, be Yeshivo Shalolam. Hashem did not create the world to be empty or even undeveloped. Un, un or underdeveloped. Rather, he wants, of course, within proper ethical and halachic frameworks, Hashem wants the world to be developed. And Yaakov, for the first time, understands that beyond just learning Torah, there's other things which are spiritually valuable and respected by Hashem. And there's nothing wrong with that. But, says Rav Moshe, Yaakov understood, and we need to understand, there can be a danger that comes along with that. And that is if we get so caught up in the genuine goodness of being Osek Yeshuva Shalolam, that we forget about Torah. And therefore, exactly at this moment, Yaakov, so to speak, reminded of himself, reminded himself almost subliminally, and we, the Torah text, are supposed to be remembering that as much as we are also supposed to be like Yaakov, understanding and respecting, being involved in commerce and economy, we can never forget the importance of Kriyasa Torah, having our focus and our professional life built on a foundation of regular and periodic Torah study. That's why within every three days, Chazal Ramatakin, Shabbos, Monday, Thursday, Torah study. Because in order for all of our work to have meaning, it has to be based on something that's even more important, and that is a spiritual and ethical foundation. Yaakov understood this lesson, and we need to learn the lesson from his observation as well. The opening of our parsha begins, and of course this is where the parsha gets its name from, by telling us, Vayetze Yaakov mi Be'er Sheva Yaakov left his parental home in Be'er Sheva, is now traveling towards Haran. Of course this is a continuation of where the last parsha left off. The narrative continues after Yaakov has to flee from his home because Esav has found out that Yaakov got the bracha of the firstborn of the Bechorah. He has announced publicly he wants to kill his brother, and therefore Rivka understands that Yaakov needs to leave the house. She persuades Yitzchak that it's time for Yaakov to find a shidduch, and the girls in the local neighborhood aren't appropriate for him. Therefore he needs to travel to a place where hopefully he'll find a more appropriate uh, shidduch. That's where last week's Parsha ended. And now this week's Parsha picks up by telling us, in fact, Yaakov did that. He leaves his parental home, and he's leaving, fleeing his brother Esav, and hopefully looking to move his life forward and get married. The Medrash in Bereshit's Rabbah, here in our Parsha, notices a certain redundancy or unnecessary phrase in the Pasuk, which then leads to what I think is actually a profound and incredibly important and instructive lesson. This Medrash is actually briefly uh, summarized, partially summarized by Rashi in a very well-known comment, but I think we'll appreciate it even more if we study the full Medrash and see Chazal's full interpretation of the events described here in this Pasuk. The problem that the Medrash is bothered by, that Rashi brings down, is that given the background that I mentioned, that this is just a continuation of the previous narrative, we already know Yaakov was in Beersheba, and now you're telling me that he left a Charon. What's the most important part of this Pasuk? That he was going towards Charon. It's not really that important to tell me Vayetzi Yaakov Beersheba. What's important is to tell me 
But more than that, it's unnecessary for the Torah, famously so economical with their words, so succinct in the psukim, barely an extra letter or word, not at all. And yet here, why do you have to tell me these extra words? Isn't that obvious? All you had to tell me was, I would have read the Pasuk, Yaakov Yaakov went towards Haran. And any person would have deduced, oh, he's going to Haran. I guess that means he left Beersheba. The Torah didn't need to write it. It's obvious. If he's going to Haran, that means he left Beersheba. So why would the Torah, famously so succinct and economical with its words, why would it waste, so to speak, these four words? They're unnecessary. That's the problem that bothers the Medrash, that Rashi partially uh, brings down and tries to answer. And the answer that the Medrash gives is something so instructive, inspiring, and profound. The Medrash asserts that the point is clear that the Torah is not just giving us a uh, triptych or the you know stage-by-stage GPS uh, printout of Yaakov's journey. It's not necessary. It's not important. When the Torah tells us of a Yetzeh Yaakov mi Shava, it's not telling us about physically that he's no longer in the city. We could have figured that out on our own. But rather, it's selling on a more profound spiritual level his departure from Beersheba left a mark. Because, says the Medrash, when you are in a city, when a great person, when a tzaddik is in a city, the tzaddik, that righteous person, is the beauty, the splendor, the grandeur of the city. As we would say more colloquially, the pride of the city. However, the Medrash continues, Yatsamisham, but once that tzaddik leaves, moves on to greener pastures for whatever the reason. Panaziva, Panahadra. All of a sudden, all that grandeur and, and splendor that the tzaddik had given to the city by his mere presence is unfortunately evaporated, it's gone. And that negatively impacts the city, it's felt. When he was not there anymore, you could feel the loss, the absence of his righteousness. The Medrash continues, that part is also already in Rashi, but the Medrash continues and tells us that this is not the only place it happens. In Tanakh later, in Megillas Rus, we read about Naami, right in the beginning, as the story unfolds, because of the famine, she wants to leave and return home, and says, She's leaving the place that she was, and the Psukim continue and tell us where she was going. And here also says the Medrash, why do you need to tell me that? Isn't it obvious once you told me that she's going back to Eretz Yehuda, she's going back to Eretz Yisrael, isn't it obvious that she's leaving where she was? Why do we need to have both halves of that verse? One would be enough, just like we asked here. And so too says the Medrash, Naomi, who was a righteous woman in her own right, just like Yaakov, when she was in that new location, she was the pride, she was the spiritual splendor and grandeur of that city. When she left, Panaziva, Panahadra. All of a sudden that city was not the same anymore. It was impoverished by her absence. All of this more or less you could find in Rashi. However, in the original Medrash, it continues and asks a question. Why do I need to have this lesson taught to us twice in Tanakh? Just tell it to me once, in either of the places, theoretically, and then I would have known this principle of Tzadik is the Ziva, is the Hadra, Pana, right? The whole thing. I would have known it. I don't need it twice. So one of the places at least is extra, is not necessary. Why teach me the same lesson in two places? So says the Medrash, profound and incredible insight. When Rus left, she was, excuse me, when Naomi left, she was the only tzedeket in her city. 
So of course, says the Medrash, it's obvious that in that case, if you're the only tzaddik, you're the only tzaddik, get the righteous woman, so of course when you leave, your absence will be felt. However, Hacha says the Medrash, when Yaakov left Beersheva, have Yitzhak Varifka. It wasn't leaving the city exactly abandoned. It wasn't leaving the city bereft of righteous people. His own parents, Yitzhak and Rivka, were there. And therefore you might have thought, no, when there's only one tzaddik in the town and that tzaddik leaves, of course that's going to make a difference. But if you're leaving behind two other tzaddikim, what's the difference? One tzaddik, two tzaddikim, three tzaddikim, they're still tzaddikim, they're still religious leadership, they're still role models, they're still inspirational figures in the city. And says the Medrash, our parsha emphasizes the impact of Yaakov to teach us, not to take anything from Yitzhak and Rivka, but by having Yaakov also there, it made an impact. And when Yaakov left, despite the fact that Yitzhak and Rivka were still there, his loss was felt. What a powerful lesson about the impact of every individual on their home. After Yaakov is taken in to Lavan's house, the Torah tells us that he was truly in love, smitten with Rachel. And as a result, he proposes an arrangement. He says to Lavan, I'll work for seven years if you will give me your daughter Rachel's hand in marriage. Lavan agrees to this proposal, and the Torah then tells us two psukim later that in fact that's what occurred. Yaakov was willing to work for Lavan for seven years so that he could marry Rachel. And those years seemed to him like very few days because of his love for her. So on the one hand, we are taken by you know a true and perhaps the first genuine love story that we see described in the actual Torah text. And yet, there's something obviously surprising and difficult to understand about the conclusion of this Pasuk. Usually when a person loves something and they have to wait for it, or for that person, as the case may be, so you may not have a choice and you have to wait, but Davka, the waiting, feels very, very slow. It's very hard for the time to pass. And whatever amount of time it is, because you love or want that thing or person so much, it actually feels, usually, I think we all know this from experience, like much longer than it actually was. You waited an hour, it felt like a day. You waited a week, it felt felt uh, like a month. You waited a month, it felt like a year. It's, it's, you know, time goes very, very slowly the more you want something. That's generally our experience, right? And yet, the Torah testifies that it was exactly the opposite. Because Yaakov loved Rachel so much, the time went fast. It doesn't seem to make any sense, and it certainly does not correspond to our general experience. So the great Musser master, Rav Elia Lapian, in his commentary to the Chumash, Lev Eliyahu, explains that this Pasuk is actually hinting at a profound Musser and really psychological insight, and that it really all depends on what you mean by love. And he suggests a illustration, almost a metaphor, uh, to make his point. Imagine a person goes to a restaurant, the waiter comes over and says, what would you like? And the person tells the waiter, I love fish. So the waiter immediately goes back to the kitchen, places the order, and they begin to prepare the food. Meanwhile, at the table right next door, right next, one table over, a very innocent, naive person overhears this conversation. And after hearing the person say how much he loves fish, he expects that the waiter is shortly going to bring him a nice aquarium 
filled with beautiful fish so that this person can look at the beautiful fish, he can feed them, he can enjoy looking at them and interacting with them. After all, he said he loves fish. And then, sometime later, much to his dismay, they don't bring out an aquarium, they bring out a plate with a fish on it. And then the person promptly takes his fork and knife, dives right in and cuts up the fish. And the person's aghast. How could you do that? He yells at him. This is what you do to something that you love? You don't love fish. If you loved fish, you could never do that. Right? Imagine, he says, I love my dog. Could I bring myself to hurt the dog? And so we, we use that term, right? People say they love their pet, they love their animal. They would never hurt the person. Yet the very same word we use when we say, I love fish, and we're happy to cut it up, kill it, and eat it. So what's going on? So it says of Eli Lapian, you have to understand. In this case, that innocent, naive person was really onto something quite profound. Usually when we say, in the general world, the way we use the term love, what we're really saying is that the person loves himself or herself. And since the person enjoys and getting, gets pleasure from, in this example, the fish, so he allows himself to eat the fish. There's nothing wrong, per se, with eating the fish, says Israeli Lapian. But we have to be more accurate and self-aware of what we mean and what we really love. In general, people think that love is the word that describes that wonderful feeling that we have in the presence of that special person, that special someone, or even being with great friends whose company we enjoy. We get some special, incredibly meaningful, deep, resonant pleasure from being in the company, spending time with such people. That's what means love. But that's not real love. Because real love is when you care so much for a person that you want to give to them and try to help them. It's not about what you get from them, but what you can give to them. He continues and he explains, and this is actually an insight, which another of the great Musar masters, a slightly younger contemporary of his, the Mechtav Melyahu of Eliyahu Dessler, who was born about 20 years after him, both born towards the end of the 19th century and made great impacts in the first part of the 20th century. And the Michtam as well also makes this point that the Hebrew word ahava is from the root, is from the shorish hav, which means to give. As if to say and to convey this deep point, that the focus of true love is not on what pleasure and benefit you receive, but on the pleasure and benefit you can bestow. Real love is about hav, it's about giving. It's not about taking. So in light of this insight and a deeper understanding of the word love, again, the Torah goes out of its way in multiple psukim here to describe how Yaakov loved Rachel. So says Reveli Lapian, now we can understand what's going on. When you really love yourself, and it would give you great pleasure if you had a certain item, a certain car, a, certain, a house, a vacation, and waiting and waiting and waiting, it feels like forever because you're going without that pleasure that you so desperately want. But in Yaakov's case, it was true and genuine love, which was not about him, but about her, about Rachel. Says the Lev Eliyahu, says of Eliyapian, in that case, the time didn't go slow, but in a certain sense, it flew by. It's not 100% clear if he means that before they got married, he was able to still give her and bestow things upon her, and that's why it went fast, or he just means that by not being self-absorbed, by not focusing on yourself, it helps the time go by. 
But either way, whatever exactly the explanation is on that last point, the insight, I think, is very profound. That This story doesn't just teach us and share an inspiring love story, but also is a window into what genuinely means to love. Rambam very beautifully and eloquently expresses the bilateral obligation that an employer and employees have towards each other. Rambam writes that Kederach Shemuzhar Balabayit Shalo Yigzol Schar Ani Lo Yagvenu, just like the employer has an absolute obligation not to withhold or even delay the wages, certainly not to cheat his workers. So too, the worker is Muzhar, Shlo Ligzol, Malachas Balabayis. The worker is similarly obligated not to steal the time that he has owed the employer. He cannot, you know, kind of fake it around and work a little now and work a little later, but not really give a full and honest day's work. Rather, says the Rambam, the obligations of employees is has to be very, very careful and treat with great respect his time when he's on someone else's payroll, when he's working for his employer. Similarly, says the Rambam in conclusion, he can't do a half job, he has to do a full job, put all of his effort, muster all of his talents and energies towards doing a good job for his employer. How do we know all of this in terms of the employee's obligation? Says the Rambam, a pasuk in this week's parsha. After all, Yaakov, who the Rambam refers to as Yaakov HaTzadik, when he tells his wives, when he realizes that time is up and you can no longer stay in a pleasant and successful way at Lovham's house, he tells his wives, Rachel and Leah, it's time to go. And as he prefaces that announcement that we need to leave and return back to my uh, childhood home, he tells his wives, you know that I put in all of my efforts all these years as I worked for your father. Says the Ramam, that testimonial that Yaakov offers actually is a halachic source for the obligations of employees to similarly, following the model of Yaakov, not only be honest, but hard and earnest workers and give their all to the employers. All of that being said, it's interesting that there is discussions in Rishonim and modern-day poskim about the ability of employees to strike and to withhold their work if they feel they're not being treated properly or being paid appropriately. Interestingly, the rush in Masechta Baba Basra, based on a Gemara there in the first parak, says that Bali Umnus, people who work in a certain specific trade, can come together and make an agreement amongst themselves so that they can you know, collectively bargain, uh, as we might say. And based on this premise and principle that the Rosh already outlines of collective bargaining and Bali Umnus, people in a, single, in a single profession getting together, Moshe Feinstein in an early tshuva says that at least in theory, Halacha would understand and respect the rights of employers, excuse me, employees to strike. Rav Moshe says, Elu hayunions shebebindina senu, this idea that there is such a concept as a, a union, people getting together, that in fact, an ability to coerce the minority to follow the majority of the union, says Ramosha, he thinks it has halachic basis in this halacha from the rush. Now, obviously, uh, Ramosha is not discussing, and certainly I'm not discussing whether to strike is a good thing, is a bad thing, are unions better for the economy, worse for the economy, workers' rights, employers' rights. 
those economic and political issues are certainly beyond the scope of uh, this sheer or my expertise. But from a strictly Allahic perspective, at least, is it theoretically possible? Rav Moshe says yes. However, a number of other poskim, while agreeing in theory, point out that there could be very interesting exceptions uh, to that rule. And to me, it's fascinating that I think that some of these principles, if not the specifics of the details, actually correspond uh, to issues that have come to the fore, whether in England or Great Britain, uh, in the last few decades. And that is based on a tosefta in Masechta Bab Metziah, which says that if you have a job that is of the public need, or what we now call an essential need, then, in fact, if there's no one else who can do your job, certainly not as well as you, then you actually have forfeited your right to strike. You no longer can do that because the, the public needs you. And based on this tosefta, the Binyan Av, that's Rav Bakshi Daron, the former Sephardic Rishon Lutzion, who unfortunately just passed away a number of months ago from Corona, he specifically uses this as the basis for the fact that if people in an essential profession uh, strike the employer, or for that matter even the government in theory, could take out a restraining order and force people back to their essential jobs and require them to continue working. Uh, specifically, Ravaj Yosef adds, when it comes to teachers, there's a big discussion about teacher strikes, certainly when it comes to Torah teachers. So Ravaj, again, not discounting the possibility that other employees might be able to strike, but Ravaj rules that it's prohibited for Torah teachers to strike. In fact, it's an Avera, and he bases this on the fact that to teach Torah is a mitzvah, and therefore you have no right to withhold that from the population of students who is expecting and depending on your work. And there's a certain uh, paradox in this that obviously no one required a person to go into the field of education to become a Torah teacher. But once you choose to do so, there are certain obligations that you take above and beyond that if you were to be a different type of profession, you certainly wouldn't have. Now that notwithstanding, it's important to recognize Rav Aaron Cutler, for example, points out that there is a chiyuv to give teachers a fair salary and to take care of them so that we can induce as a societal, as a society people to go into those professions. Exactly what those numbers should be and how to balance that is a very complicated question, but at least in principle, halacha recognizes both the need to treat the teachers with proper respect and to pay their needs appropriately and respectfully, at the same time the teacher's obligation to teach their students. In a parallel vein, uh, postgame, particularly in Eretz Yisrael, where this came up, in the mid-1980s, in particular, in a very famous case, speak about doctor strikes. And similarly, Rav Shlomo Zaman Orbach and others have ruled that doctors have no right to strike if it will in any way endanger uh, the general populace. After all, it is a mitzvah to be a doctor. It's a mitzvah to administer a medical uh, tra- you know, treatment to people. And the Shulchan Aruch rules that a doctor who does not uh, perform his job appropriately and adequately is considered a murderer. Harizesh Shofech Damim. So on the one end, again, doctors have to be taken care of appropriately. But even if they're not, they have to find other recourses. They cannot strike.